0: Hmm. Recorded live.
1: matter. (laughs) We do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We pray that the Lord will be with us tonight, and uh, I'm Sean McCraney, your host. You know, when uh, we first started out on TV here in Utah, and we were talking all about Latter-day Saints, uh, and now that we're talking a lot about Christianity and what goes on with Christians and things like that, well, really, it's all the same game. It really is all the same. It's just we're playing on a different court. We were playing on a court uh, in one place uh, when we were doing the LDS. Now we're playing the same game. We'll just move to a different court. What I mean by that is when I was going after Mormonism, many of the things that came against me had to do with the same things that are being thrown against me now. So, I've gotten wind of people who say, you know, you know, I'm not going to listen to the guy who rolls his shirt up or has his shirt unbuttoned. So we're back to looking at the clothes, which is what the do. and I know humans do this. Part of the reason I kind of do that. Uh, another one, was when I was LDS, they used to say, you know, Sean, if you start going down the road of apostasy, you're going to, you're going to cling on one thing and, the, and you're going to embrace it, and then it's going to open the door to another thing and another thing, and, and pretty soon you're just going to be a full-blown apostate. So to shut it all off and just agree with everything, that's LDS, and you'll never have to fear becoming an apostate. Well, they're saying the same things now. You know, once he started questioning the Trinity, then he starts questioning eternal punishment, then he starts questioning uh, preterism and and futurism. and, And you know what? If something can't stand up to scrutiny, it needs to be deconstructed. If you start to go down a road and you start to scrutinize and you find out there are alternatives, even viable alternatives to consider, then it's okay. With God and Christ, the Holy Spirit, love, faith, those things can't be deconstructed. They're true. They work. And so on that we build our faith and we have fellowship with one another in the family of Christ. It's like, you know, it's kind of like being in a family with, with several brothers, um, and I have two brothers. You're going to get along with some of them uh, or all of them in certain ways, and there's going to be other things that you really differ on. For instance, my older brother, uh, Jeff, now deceased, he was a very different guy. He, he and I had very little in common except the same parentage and same siblings. Uh, he saw life, looked at life, approached life completely differently than I did and than I do, and yet he's my brother, and that's the case with Matt. And, and Matt Flick, who we had on the show last week, and who we're going to air tonight, giving part two, talking about unconditional election. I'm going to go first. We're going to air it. And then he's going to go. It's going to take total combined, Matt and I, I think about 25 or 30 minutes around there. And then we'll come back and take calls and read emails. And Matt will be joining us then through Skype. So if you have questions for Matt or whatever, he'll come on the show, and you can talk to him through Skype. He'll be on your screen. But he's He's my brother. He's a five-point Calvinist. He, he articulates it well. He, he believes it completely. I don't care. He's my brother in Christ. And Arminius, who can do the same thing with Arminianism is going to be the same thing. The question is, can I be accepted in how I view things and the way I see the gospel? And can you? And can the other guy? And can the other girl? And can all that stuff? James Banta wrote uh, somewhere online, we have to come to oneness of the faith. Not oneness in terms of uh, worldwide oneness, but when it comes to faith in Christ, we have to put away the differences. Last week, we had the privilege of having Matt uh, Slick here, and he talked about Calvinism. We didn't do much talking with each other, but we were able to share what we believe relative to the first point of Calvinism, the nature of humankind, with Matt suggesting total inability for humans to do anything at all, to look toward God, and me standing with the idea that while we're sinful, and certainly prone to wander, human beings do have an ability to respond to God or to reject Him. His premise was one; mine was the other. The following day, Matt and I, with our dutiful teams here in house, took a few hours and pre-recorded our views. And uh, those points are uh, total depravity, which you did last week unconditional election, which we'll do tonight, and then the following weeks we're going to air our respective representations on limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, or what's known as once saved, always saved. As far as I'm concerned, though, the greatest thing that has come about through our conversation here on the show with Matt is not to sway you to Calvinism, Arminianism, or total reconciliationism, but to show that different views can exist and people can continue to love each other and consider each other all in the family under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In my opinion, if a thief can be with the Lord in paradise who apparently lacked complete knowledge of any and all of this stuff, then none of this is a hill to die on. Uh, I'm not so sure Matt would agree with that, but it is certainly my opinion. Again, if the good news has been received by an individual And they're our brother and sister in Christ by virtue of accepting that good news. The differences can be settled or set aside with love and by the Spirit. So let's open up with prayer, and then we'll get into our topic of unconditional election. You're going to see me first from last week, pre-recorded, and then Matt will follow up, and then we will uh, watch a short spot and come up. Matt will join us in Skype, and you can call in at 801-590-8413 and pose your comments, or questions. Father, we love you and we seek you. We thank you for Jesus, uh, who is the only way to heaven, and who in this life to receive is the only way to escape hell, uh, the lake of fire, to be saved, Lord. So we admit this. We see this. We love the gospel. We're grateful for it. Be with us now as we consider the things that are said in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week we were supposed to talk about uh, total depravity. We kind of overflowed into other points of uh, tulip. Tonight, Matt and I are going to discuss unconditional election. We're sitting in the studio, pre-recording this, and uh, or echoing the sentiment that God unconditionally elects some to salvation. A reiteration, in my opinion, of total depravity and the need for God to step in and save without any. Any input on our part. Of all the five points, I can't disagree with this point very much. I I, I almost completely agree with this point. However, I understand and see God's election relative to Scripture a little bit differently than my brother here, and I hope that I have it right. Let me explain by giving you kind of a simple illustration. Let's say that you're in your house and you're living your life oblivious to what's going on outside, and, uh, and you hear a honk, and you don't realize it, but it's the UPS man. And you're standing in your house, and the UPS man has a truck full of platinum, diamonds, gold, silver, all in crates for you. He knocks, but you, you think, I'm not expecting anybody. You don't answer He rings the bell, you think it's kids playing tricks, he screams, he yells, you go to the door, you don't open it, and you say, who is it? I'm the UPS man. And you say, I didn't order anything. Go away. And he says, I've got a delivery for you. Is it COD? You ask, it's all paid, completely paid for. Do I have to unload it? No, I'll unload it. Is there any obligation for me accepting this? None whatsoever. What's in it? I only deliver the packages, ma'am. It's for you. Do you want it or not? Now, it's your decision. It's your decision to open the door. It's yours. That's it. It's an unattached, utterly free gift, unconditionally presented, free delivery, unloaded for free, given for free. The question here is, Where is the glory in someone receiving a gift like this? If someone sent you a gift like this, how is that giving you glory by receiving it? That's kind of what the presentation is in Calvinism, that we glory ourselves for receiving this awesome gift. That's not how it would be in this life. I mean, if someone came and gave us a gold watch, We wouldn't glory in the fact that we received it. We would be so grateful that someone gave it to us. We would be so amazed at their generosity, but we would not be glorying in the fact that we opened the door for the man who delivered it. He is knocking. He is offering the gifts unattached. He is persistent. He is so loving our UPS God. He does not go away. He stays parked outside the door. He's done everything to reach us. All we have to do is open the door. That's not a boastful work. It's a work. It's not even a work at all. It's not something we take credit for. In fact, we are broken by the fact that it has taken us so long to open that door and receive that free gift. The idea of total depravity necessitates the doctrine of absolute unconditional election to the point that even opening the door is impossible for a human being. This is counter to a huge body of scripture that talks about these very things to receive, to believe, to choose to receive and believe, to seek God in spirit and in truth, to have a soft heart, to preach, to tell people to open their eyes, all of these uh, implications to people to invitations uh, to people to get come on open receive that's all that's all it is now people with, who love the darkness more than the light they won't they don't, they're not seeking they don't want God in spirit and in truth so they never open that door now if God is in control of our election so entirely that he has to force that door open knock it down and come in and deliver those goods, whether we want them or not, why does he say in Ezekiel 18.23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Too often we hear Calvinists say that the damnation of the non-elect is the pleasure of his will, the good pleasure of his will. They use pulling from Romans for that. It's to his good pleasure. But here, God explicitly says that he takes no pleasure in the damnation of anybody, any of the wicked dying, but prefers that they turn from sin and live. How this idea fits into the Calvinistic scheme of unconditional election is not clear to me. Uh, nor is it clear relative to Matthew 23:37. Uh, 37. We, this was brought up last night by a caller. Jesus standing over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sit you, how often I have longed, God, he's saying, I have longed to gather your children together. I have longed to do it as him gather her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. But you were not willing, but you would not open that door. That is a perfect example. Things like this present extreme difficulty for this idea of total depravity and unconditional election. First of all, we have to assume that the choices of Jerusalem were the good pleasure of the Father. It was to his good pleasure that Jesus is weeping over them. He's saying he wishes they would have come, but it was to God's good pleasure. If it was, why was it so displeasing and heart to Jesus, who was always in agreement with God's divine will? Jesus wasn't praying over them as a man. He always did the will of the Father. It wasn't his manliness crying over them, unaware of what God's intentions were. He only spoke and said what the Father wanted him to. That was not... A, hypostatic union of a man coming out and saying, oh, I feel so bad for Jerusalem. God doesn't want them to be saved, but I feel so bad. That was not it at all. It was simply Jesus saying, you had the opportunity to open a door, and you didn't. Shouldn't have Jesus been pleased with their rejection because that was the Father's will? Also know Jesus is attributing the lost condition to Jerusalem to her own unwillingness not the lack of election. Here Jesus, God in the flesh, was was willing to receive them if they were willing, but they weren't. This is a direct contradiction of Calvinistic assertion of total depravity and unconditional election. If Jesus would, that they would have come to him, but they would not. That's a condition. That's a condition. They would not open their heart. So, is there an option in Scripture that says no to this system there's two systems essentially within christianity there's calvinism and there's arminianism and i don't like either of them do i have that right as a christian to not like either of them i hope so and i that's really the point here it's not so much that matt is wrong and i am right in my opinion it's that matt sees it one way and i see it another and an arminian sees it another way and a futurist sees it another way and an amillennial sees it another way and a Preterist sees it this way. The question is, can we, amidst all these views, agree to disagree and love each other as a body? That's the question. So is there another way, besides the Calvinist Arminius way? If you've been a viewer of our program, I'm going to quickly tell you what way it is, I believe, and it is supported by Scripture. This position accepts the biblical teaching of the complete sovereignty of God. So Matt and I are not in disagreement with it. It accepts the biblical teaching that God does, in fact, elect all who are his to salvation. He elects all who are his to salvation. A position that accepts the fact that God does give all people the freedom to choose and have the ability to open the door to salvation while reaping what they have sown. It's a position that supports the fact that God, our sovereign, loving God, will have total victory over the wiles of Satan and the will of men. He will win. He will have victory. It's a position I call total reconciliationism, and in four sentences, four paragraphs, this is how it works. By and through his mysterious foreknowledge of all things, God, out of his perfect, loving goodness, that he is, first elected a nation to bring forward the law, the prophets, and the Messiah. He knew that that nation would kill the same Messiah that came to them. God then elected those who are his through his foreknowledge of who would choose him. He didn't learn this. He knew it. He knew who would be his, and by his foreknowledge, he elected them to be sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ, for those who suffered with him. These are saved from death and hell. Not all are saved just those God knew who would receive Christ by faith in this life. They are his. By his foreknowledge, God knew that few would receive his son by faith in this life. And so hell, it's a place, it's a dark place for misery for people to consider. We don't know that much about it. Scripture tells us that hell gives up its dead. It says that. Gives up its dead, right? And they all stand before the great white throne. And the books are open, and another book is open, the Lamb's Book of Life. And what do they do? They look to see if those who were in hell name are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How could someone who is in hell's name be written in the Lamb's Book of Life? It could because their knees bow. Their tongue confess that Jesus was the Christ, and they were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are cast into what is called the lake of fire. Do you know where the lake of fire is? It's in the presence of the Lord and his holy angels. It's not a pit down in the earth. It's not synonymous with hell. Revelation tells us it's in the presence. What's burning them in the lake of fire? His presence. What's his presence? It's love. It's light. It's Purging and burning and removing all the things that are obstacles to their obstinate ways. They will come out of there after a cup, which is a limited amount, is poured upon them. The cup of his wrath. It's not endless stripes. You pour a cup once, it's done. You're beaten with a few stripes, you get beaten with a few stripes again and again. Eternality of punishment that's completely ungodly and it's not biblical. It's only read to be biblical by people who desire it. How could you desire somebody to be suffering forever and ever and ever? God doesn't want that, but He lets us have it by our choice. The length of time in that age is unknown. One second in it in hell, one second in the lake of fire is no good. You're going to hate it, and so we preach Jesus. And we say, believe in him now. Open the door. He's out honking. He's knocking. Wholly supported by Scripture and sound contextual understanding. Total reconciliation allows God to remain more than just sovereign, but just, loving, merciful. It allows man to have free will in response to those he chose to who choose to serve him. It allows for us to reap what we sow. It's very responsible. We reap what we sow, as Paul said. It allows for God to elect all of us to places he knew we would be used for the best according to his foreknowledge and our faith, or lack of it. It it admits to hell. It admits to a lake of fire, to future discipline. It it admits the glorious blessing and reward for those who choose Jesus in this life by faith and God making them joint heirs through his spirit. And it makes Jesus the author and finisher of the faith. For all, for all, we're going to get to that point next after Matt talks, not just the few God has capriciously elected to life. Of all the five points, unconditional election is the one I agree with the most, with the one exception. He unconditionally elects all we have to do is open the door. Seekers do. Lovers of truth do. Lovers of dark don't. But God will have his way in the end. All right. You got to hear all that uh, fall draw and rhetoric and accept it or not. You know, it's open. Matt's going to give some real good arguments for uh, unconditional election next, which is uh, uh, in harmony with five point Calvinism. So let's listen to brother Matt.
2: All right. So the second letter in TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, is unconditional election. We always have to define our terms. What does unconditional election mean? And what it means is really simply one thing, that God does not look into the future in any way, shape, or form and consider what is in a person, in equality in a person, in order to elect, in order to choose that person for salvation. Now, we know from 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that God chooses us for salvation. That's what the text says. He chooses us. We're not choosing ourselves. Romans 9.14 says that it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs but upon God who has mercy. Talking about the issue of God's sovereign election, talking about his choice and his work with people. It says it does not depend upon the man who runs or the man who wills but upon God who has mercy, Romans 9.14. So God does not, It's is very important, he does not consider anything in the person whether it's going to be foreseen knowledge, foreseen goodness, foreseen anything, in order to pick that person, to choose to, that person, to elect that person for salvation. This is a critical doctrine. I think it's very, very important. And the reason it is important because, well, for one thing, we are sinners by nature.
0: We went over this
2: on the issue of total depravity. The Bible says that we're full of evil. We're haters of God. We can do no good. We can't seek for God. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful and things like that. So God is not going to look into the future to see what's going to be good in us, potentially, and choose us. It's unconditioned. Now, the Bible says there's no partiality with God. That's Romans 2.11. But also we see in James chapter 2, if you read James 2, you'll find out what the Scriptures teach about what partiality is. And James talks about you see a rich person coming in dressed in fine linen, fine clothing, and say, Please sit here. Please sit there. It's a quality about that person that we might look at and then judge that person as being more worthy of a better position. That's the kind of partiality that the Bible speaks about and condemns. It is not that God looks in the future to see who's going to pick him. It is so important but so many people think that in their sincerity, in their ability, that God can see what he can do with them, that he's going to choose them. That makes God a responder and a respecter of individuals. It makes him partial to the individual in contradiction to what the scripture says. So unconditional election is the act of God's sovereign will where he, before the creation of the world, chooses an individual or group of people to accomplish a specific purpose. In the case of Christians, it's for salvation. As I've already quoted, Second Thessalonians two thirteen, he chose us from the beginning, for salvation through Jesus. Now I've already quoted before last week Acts 13:48. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. We can go to uh, Luke, excuse me, Matthew 24:22, where Jesus says, "In the last days, many false prophets and false Christs will arise and deceive many. To deceive, if possible, even the elect." Now the word "elect" is really interesting because in Greek we can basically have three main words that are used for elect or to choose. Eklektos, eklegei, and eklegamon, and these different words are used in different ways throughout so like the Bible, but it deals with the issue of being chosen. So eklektos, for example, for the sake of the elect, as already read in Matthew twenty four twenty two, Matthew twenty four twenty four, to mislead if possible even the elect, or twenty four thirty one, God will gather His elect from the four winds, and it goes on. And we have uh, the word translated into chosen, Matthew twenty four fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. Rufus is a chosen individual in the Lord. That's Romans 16:13. A lot of times people say, no, what God does is he chooses groups of people, and inside the groups of people, individuals make their own choices. But here we see Rufus is a specifically chosen individual. That's Romans 16:13. You can also go to Acts, I mean it's Acts 9, 15. That range where it says Paul, Paul is, is redeemed. You know, Jesus appears to him, knocks him off the horse, and uh, Jesus is talking in a vision to and Ananias and says he's a cho- regarding Paul, he's a chosen instrument of mind. He is a chosen person, a chosen instrument. 1 Peter 1 1, Peter writes to those who are chosen by God. The elders of the chosen lady and her children. That's 2 John 1. Uh, 2 John 13, the children of the chosen sister. As you can see, and you should be able to see clearly, the Bible teaches that individuals are also chosen. Now I'd love to be able to go through Romans nine nine to twenty three sometime. We're talking about the vessel and the man and the individuals that are chosen for specific callings and work. This is what the Bible says. Revelation seventeen fourteen, that those who are uh, with Jesus are the chosen ones. The chosen ones. And I already went to Acts uh, nine fifteen. Paul, a chosen vessel. Romans nine eleven, God chose to love Jacob and to hate Esau. Now. A lot of people do not like this idea of God choosing. And the reason they don't, and it's my opinion, I'm not trying to project motives or reasons into people's hearts, but in my 35 years of doing apologetics and dealing with people and going over these issues, I just have an opinion and you can dismiss it all you want. But I suspect that what's going on, as I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people about this issue who reject this, they, don't, they reject it because they don't like the idea of God being the sovereign Lord they want themselves to be the sovereign in the choice of their own salvation in the ability of their own hearts and minds. Now, I'm not trying to project this on everybody who doesn't agree with me. I'm just saying that this is something I've seen many times before, that people very often will say, I don't like that because I'm the one who's got to choose. And besides, they'll say, look, Matt, if God is the one who chooses us, how can we then be responsible for, for going to hell? If God chooses us, How can we be responsible for the sins that we're going to be doing? This is a common objection. Well, it's real simple. We are born into sin. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. We are by nature children of wrath, the Bible says, by nature and by essence. All God's got to do is let everybody just go to hell. That's where we all belong anyway. That's all he's got to do. He's not obligated to save anybody. He saves us out of the kindness of his own heart the kindness of his own will. He doesn't look to see who's going to be good enough to be saved. It's just not possible. If God would let every individual who's ever existed simply go to hell in a natural way, he's perfectly just and just as loving. This is a hard thing for a lot of people to understand. But just as the Bible says that there are elect angels in 1 Timothy 5.21, there are elect people as well. God has, out of the kind counsel of his own will, predestined, chosen and predestined people for salvation, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 5. And he did this according to the kind intention of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. He does this because of his sovereignty, not because of ours. He does it because of his goodness, not because of ours. He has no partiality, Romans two eleven, James 2. He's the one who chooses us. Now, God chooses one person and not another and people object. Well, that's not fair. Yes, it is fair. It's fair because it's what God decides to do, not what man says, not what man wants. The idea of a lot of people is, no, I want God to be the way I want God to be. I want God to give me that choice, which is my responsibility. Fine. Then you join with Eve in the Garden of Eden, talking to the evil one, and you say, look, I can see what is right, and I can see what is good, and I don't care what the Word says of God, but I'm going to choose for myself what I will decide is good and bad, and I'll make a choice. The sovereignty that we desire in our own hearts is due to the total depravity that flows through all of our veins, that echoes in the, the Edenic fall down through history in our hearts and our souls and our minds as we resist God and we desire to be our own little God's and to do I'm guilty of this myself when I desire to do things my way and not God's way. I war with my sin, even as Paul said in Romans 7, 18 through 25, we war with the sin that we still have, even though we're redeemed. But God loves us, and he unconditionally elected us from the foundation of the world. It can be no other way. Think about it. 1 John 3.20 says God knows all things. When he created the universe, he didn't look and learn into the future. That would violate his omniscience. He knows what he's going to bring about when he creates that universe, wherever Adam's going to be because this is what God ordains. It cannot be any other way. Since he makes the heart and he makes the mind and he makes the body, he makes the soul and he puts them in that place at that time. Does he not know the exact outcome of every single circumstance that he's ordained will be? Of course he does. For someone to say, well, no, no, no. It's up to our free will and up to our choice and to our ability. Well, then that's just, well, it's a form of idolatry because that's not the case. Now, John said that God does not take de- uh, pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want to address that because it's something that is often raised. It's like saying, "Well, if He elects some to salvation, lets the others go to hell, then He's taking de- delight and pleasure over them." I never say that that's what He does, but let me read what the Bible says because it does say in Ezekiel 18:32, "Does God take pleasure in the death of the wicked?" And He said, "No." But you know what it says in Deuteronomy 28:63? God delights to destroy the people of Israel. He does, and the word there in the in Hebrew, I believe, it is so. Oh, if I remember correctly, that he desires to do this. It is a desire, and it's a want. And there are other verses like that in the Bible. We can go to Mark seven. Excuse me, Mark ten. Excuse me, Mark four. Excuse me, ten through twelve, where Jesus speaks in parables, so people will not be saved. Now, someone might say. But why then would he do that if total depravity is true they can't believe on their own? Because Jesus, God in flesh, that created the universe, when he said, let there be light, there was light. And he's speaking the word of God, and I believe that because he's who he is, God in flesh, that when he speaks, and he says, repent, they're going to repent. If he commanded is going to occur. So for the non-elect, he spoke in parables so they will not be saved. And you can disagree with me all you want, but go to, uh, go to Mark 4, 10 through 12, and you read that that is the case. That he spoke in parables so they will not be saved. If he wants everyone to be saved equally, then why does he say he sends a believing influence in Second Thessalonians chapter two? So that people will believe the lie. If he wants every individual to be saved equally, and it's up to the individual, then why does he, in Romans chapter one, verses eighteen through thirty two, why does he speak in such a way and say that people are given over to the depravity of their hearts and their minds? Well some say, Well, Matt, if they're already depraved, why give them over to that? It's further judgment. That's why. Further judgment upon them that they might accomplish even the desires of God in that judgment. People say, I don't like that. Then take take Acts 4, 27-28 out of your Bible where God says that he predestined Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Gentiles of Israel to crucify Jesus. That means they had to sin in order to do that. Yet it was by the predetermined plan and purpose of God that it occurred. There are far more deeper doctrines about this associated with this than we have time to go in. I teach Bible studies on this, and we take hours to go through the scriptures and go through them in detail and see how they fit together when you see the broad scope of things. But let me tell you, it is not the case that we in our sovereignty are wise enough or good enough to be able to choose God. God, in his unconditional election, and that's what this segment is about, The unconditional election means he does not look in the future to see who's going to pick him. No one's going to. He does not look in the future at a condition inside of somebody, like, say, for example, in my heart, and say, Matt Slick is going to be worth saving. Wrong. Or Matt Slick can be used to do good things, but so-and-so can't be. Wrong. God is the one who's sovereign, and God can do with his broken vessels what he desires, He's the sovereign king. He does not consider anything in any of us worthy to be saved, and then chooses us based on that. Now, some say, but Matt, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So let me ask you a question. Does God know everyone? And the answer quite simply is no, he does not. Does he know all things? Yes, he does, first John three twenty. But the Bible says. Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and need perform many miracles. And he says, and I, I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. If God says I never knew you, it means you're not saved. In Galatians 4, uh, verses 8 and 9, when you did not know God, you served by nature those which are not God's. But now that you come to know God, or rather are known by him, now you serve a true living God. Now the word for know there is gnosko. When you go to Romans eight twenty nine, where it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew, is pro Genosco. God only knows the believers. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The foreknown ones are the predestined ones. It doesn't say of all the people he looked in the teacher to see who's going to believe in whatever condition, some of them he predestined. It does not say that. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. They're the same ones. He only knows those whom he's called in that saving way, the way God uses those words in Scripture. I suggest do a study in that word know, K-N-O-W, see how God uses it, see how Christ uses it. You'll see that he doesn't know anybody, he, I mean, except for Christians. He only knows the believers, only says, I know you, to the believers, to the elect, to the chosen, whom he has brought to himself unconditionally, not based on us, not based on one in us, but only in the heart and mind of God in the loving call of God. Cause if he did not do that, no one would ever be saved. He gets the glory because he is so good and kind to save anybody in the first place. Amen. And amen.
1: All right. As I mentioned before, uh, brother Matt, uh, we just played Matt. Uh, I agree with 99% of what Matt said. Uh, on the subject of God calling, reaching sovereignty, predestined, electing, all of that. That's what makes the the subject difficult. And, and so, um, and it's why there's division because within every uh, system, if you want to call them systems, within every belief system, there's truth. I mean, there has to be, or else people wouldn't embrace them. So we're seeking for truth. And if, Matt opens your eyes to something that you haven't understood or or known, praise God. If if it's biblical and it's sound and supportive, then that's a wonderful thing. And if I do that and if someone else does that, that's great. Uh, We see through a glass darkly. We do not have a system of this thing down. We might sound like we do, but we are just feebly trying to understand God who sent his son, who ascended and hasn't. Return to hang out with us here in the flesh to continue to talk to us. We have words that are translated. We read them by the Spirit. We and, and God, I believe, as I said last time, creates tension so that we can learn to agree to disagree, to love each other in spite of our differences, to fellowship with people who come in who are of different uh, worldviews etc.
2: Cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: So grateful for uh Matt Slick giving us that next week. We're gonna continue on. We're not done tonight, but we're gonna continue on with uh the L Limited Atonement. I think that's right. Tulip. lip. And uh and then Matt is going to join us after we take a look at this.
0: I think. Well Matt's joined us now. I was that All right, Matt Flick, you there? Can you hear me? I hear you. All right. Hey,
1: Matt, uh, we're going to take a caller. It's Matt from Cedar Falls on line one. Let's see what he has to say. Matt from Cedar Falls, Iowa, you're on the air. Yeah, you need to turn your computer down, Matt.
0: Okay. You
1: yes, you're on the air with Matt Flick and Sean McCraney. Oh. Uh, I actually just, had a think, I just saw both
3: presentations really quick. I thought they were you know, actually both really good. I did think that they kind of agree with each other. I did have some questions in regards to the statement that you made at the beginning of the episode. Okay. Okay. If uh, you're in particular, I'm looking at Revelation. I'm looking at the Green Long Okay. Now, in terms of. Uh, the wine, that's, the wine of the wrath that's poured out, actually from chapter 14, where it says, uh, and was talking about the beast. And he's saying, said, those who receive his mark and forehead or his hand, they have drink the uh, wine of the wrath of God, just poured out without mixture. Uh, and they shall be, uh, tormented with fire and burnstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Yeah. And I noticed that you said that they would be called back up. From, from hell or something like that, you're in presence of the Lord and it's his presence that's providing them light or something like that. The scripture says that they're tormented in his presence with fire and brimstone.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, um, I think that they are tormented and I think they are in torments. Uh, brimstone and uh, is a word that is used as a touchstone for rubbing away not destroying. apulamai. the destroying word for apulamai doesn't uh, mean completely uh, obliterate. It means to uh, eliminate, cleanse, purge, purgatory, if you want, whatever it is. But, you know, uh, this isn't a hill to die on, and it's really a side issue to Calvinism. I mentioned it because I think it's a, it's a, a third way for Christians to understand and view the Bible. I know it's rejected by most and called heresy, but uh, I think we've done a lot of study on it online, and you're, you're asking me to come now, and my mind's on Calvinism, and go back to Basilio and all the stuff that has to do with those passages, but we have covered them in pretty good depth. We're not alone. Preterist Archive covers it. I know Matt's not a preterist, but that's not our topic for now, so I really can't answer it adequately and justly. But your but your point is well taken, and let anyone who's searching look at that point. Does that help? Okay. Well, yeah, that was uh, that was really what I was talking about. Like I said, I did see both presentations. I thought you, you know you both did
3: a decent job of uh, presenting. God. God. Like I said, both sides really seemed like they were kind of you know agreeing with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there were certain points that you did where I noticed that you didn't agree with Matt, but I, you know the stuff that Matt was saying was basically coming out of scripture, and so that stuff yeah. you know that I pulled to review. Uh, so yeah, that was. I thought both presentations were okay. Again, the only reason I, I haven't had that particular question. I didn't need to get off the topic. Of I was mentioned at the start of the show, so I what my question was in regard. This was even before I saw the presentation. So I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, was, Matt. Was, that was, that was, God
1: bless you, brother. All right, yes, yeah, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Matt Slick, can I ask you, so we, had, we didn't talk much, you and I. Uh, can I ask you a few things just to help my understanding? Sure. It's not to try to trap or anything else. I just don't get this.
4: All
2: right.
1: Listening to you talk about unconditional election and total depravity the week before, this isn't a setup, so answer honestly. You, God knows all things and always has known all things. Is that correct? Right. He's not learning, right?
2: That's correct. All right.
1: Would you say and agree with 1 John that he's loved?
2: Yes, for John Fourier.
1: Yeah. All right. Would you say that
2: his will is done? In all things. In all things. All right. Which we In theology, there was called a decretive will, prescriptive will, permissive will. Decretive will in that uh, he decrees certain things that exist, like the universe and, and things, the birth of Christ. Prescriptive is don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. But he permits us to lie, cheat, and steal. So it's some of the basics that some theologians have have uh, subdivided God's will and to. So we say yes, or no. it gets a little more complicated, but yeah, his what, will is done. What's
1: the third one, theologically speaking?
2: It's permissive. He permits, it's his will to permit sin to occur, for example.
1: Right. So my question is, he is loved, he knows all things. Why, Matt, would he create a system where he would only choose to elect Filthy, rotten sinners from a pile of filthy, rotten sinners. I don't understand how God can be loved. He knows all things. He has an option, and he's picking from rotten eggs, according to your description of us. He's only chosen some rotten eggs and not all rotten eggs i don't can you ex- help me understand that how you reconcile him being love and yet only choosing some rotten eggs
2: well that would be uh, an answer that only God himself could uh, address why would God do what he does? He does what he does because he does what he does He has told us for example in romans nine sixteen Romans 9, uh, 22 23, what if God was willing to endure
0: with his patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so, that he might show Oh, he does these things. Uh, why? why? Because of, the, of,
2: of his will. Now, he is love, but he's also just. He's ho- also holy. I'm of the opinion that only God cannot sin that all sentient beings, except for the elected angels who were chosen not to sin, second Timothy 5.21, that all sentient beings, once they're elected not to sin as the angels, are going to sin because they're not holy. Okay. So out of that, uh, God just elected those whom he chose. I don't know why he didn't do more. I don't know why he didn't do less. I don't know. Um, a couple follow-up questions to that, and
1: I've lost it. But When you're talking, I lost it. Oh, that, Romans 9. That pose is a hypothetical. By the way, he says, "What if God?" Yeah, yeah. So it is a hypothetical. If he chose some to be elected and some to damnation, Paul hypothetically presents that. Not God has. I just want our audience to understand that when that passage is finished.
2: That's one perspective, uh, but it does say that he loved one and hated another, raised up a certain individual for certain reasons, does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. He raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of destroying him. He hardens no if he wants, et cetera. He does all this. He makes vessels of wrath for honorable use and vessels which are individuals for dishonorable use. Would have God be willing to do this? If he wants to do that, he can do that, and he does do it. And that's why it said that he did so among the rich uh, uh and he did so to make them the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory verse 23 yeah we could discuss romans 9 i'm familiar with it and the counter arguments well
1: uh this really isn't a counter argument i'm trying to understand that i really am because if there's something i'm missing i want to know it but would you agree that we have witnesses we have a witness of our own conscience would you agree that Scripture speaks of our conscience. Sure,
2: That's right. Romans 1. Yeah. Romans That's
1: 1. Perfect example. So we have a testimony, if you will, coming from the LDS side. We have a witness in our conscience that speaks to us. In my conscience, I have a very difficult time accepting the end result of this model called Calvinism. My conscience says God is love. We can look to him for all, all these things. He's the creator. He lets the rain shine on the just and the unjust, all these good things about God. He so loved the world. He sent his only begotten son. All these things, my conscience tells me that it's not reconcilable that this model, which testifies of something different, can tell me that God has just elected some, and the rest he knew and he created to burn forever forever. That is, I have a a problem of two witnesses in my heart. I have a witness of Calvinism, and I have a witness of conscience, which Scripture does speak to. And if you have two witnesses that are against each other, which one am I supposed to listen to?
2: When people say God is love, and then they focus on that one attribute, they are actually misrepresenting God. Because God certainly is love, but he's also just, he's also holy. And he had to take all of his attributes together. Whenever anybody raises a single attribute above other attributes or represents God that way, then they're misrepresenting God because they're not looking at him in totality. When we say that God elects some, I don't know why God doesn't elect more, even though I have a theory that it's due to the Christians, and that's another thing. But you know, does God want to make people like that? Well, Proverbs 16, 4, he makes all things, even the wicked for the day of destruction. That's what it says. Sure. You know, I don't but like
1: that. I, I agree it with it. I agree with that, the wicked for the day of destruction. But does it mean forever and ever and ever?
2: Well, that's, that's what we can get into on, on eternal torment and things like that. Yeah. Do that. And I'm... I'm Trust me, I'm quite familiar with the arguments on that as well. I've had a lot of dealings with it, and I can show you that the eternal, uh their position is not correct. But nevertheless, the issue here is, God is just. He is going to punish people. He is going to, according to the law, and if He doesn't do it, He's an unholy, and He's unrighteous. So a question, but the question goes both ways. Why would God, let's take the Arminian perspective, as it's often contrasted with Calvinism, why would God make people he knew of their own so-called free will would choose to uh, reject him and then suffer? Why would he do that?
1: He, he wouldn't. That's why I don't agree with Arminianism either.
2: Well, because, foolishness? well I'm just saying that's the other position. Right. It cuts both ways. But, but I know your position. You know, you want to say that um, people suffer and they go to, to go to uh, a place of suffering, and then they're eventually reconciled, except that Colossians 2.14 says he canceled the certificate of debt and uh, on the cross. So there, can't, there is no sin debt that anybody has if he died for everybody who ever lived. This is next week's topic. For that. Okay. that would mean, then, that nobody could go suffer for the sins that have been canceled. Failing Period. And that's all a better topic. We can get into that more specifically next week. Okay. As far as election goes, God chooses whom he wants for salvation. Okay. I wish he chose more. I don't know why he, he does You wish know. there
1: was. God knows how to give gifts far better than we do, but you wish me. he did a better job. Yeah, but I'm not God. I don't know if he's ever talked to you I, and said, uh, well, I, I need advice on something. I don't get this, Matt. Let me ask you something. James says that mercy robs justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. You're saying if we as hold God up as love, which John the Beloved, by the way, did, he said he is love, and he excluded all the other things. Uh, you're saying that we have to take all attributes and put them on an equal basis, and I'm not sure that's correct. If God's mercy can triumph over justice, which is what Christ did, it was merciful that he even sent his son, showing that mercy can triumph over evil and darkness, Why can't that carry through to everything that we see God about? Why do we have to place justice on an equal footing with exact mercy when he sent his son to take care of it all?
2: But that's exactly why you do, because he took care of it. That was justice. The law had to be met. And if the law is not met, then God approves of sin. Okay. So with just in it as Jesus was made under the law, Galatians four four, and never broke the law, first Peter two twenty two. I agree. His justice is absolutely met and is just as as important as his holiness and his love. Okay, his love that motivated him to save us, but it's his justice that requires
1: the cross. Okay. And I agree with you, Matt. So he sent his son, and justice was met for the whole world. For the whole world. Well, and the, wait, let me finish now. And the sin debt was paid. And so people don't go to the lake of fire for their sin in the flesh that was paid for. But everything was nailed to the cross, except for faithlessness and failing to love, the new commandment. It's a new commandment, so we can fail, so we can sin. James talks about if you know to do good and you don't do it, it is sin. So we can, as Christians, the debt was paid. But we can heap upon ourselves sin, can we not? Sin of faithlessness and and failing to love?
2: Well, you made a mistake, no offense meant, but faith, the commandment uh, to believe in God is in Exodus 20, "You shall have no other gods before him. We are commanded to believe and trust in the true living God. The issue of faith being separated from all other things, as a lot of people like to mistakenly say, Jesus paid for the sins of everything except faithlessness. Really? Well, uh, you know, what, a, what do you do with the atheist who is faithless until so was 80 years old and then believes in Christ and dies a year later? Is faithlessness not paid for? Of course it is. Faith is part of the requirement but of the law. But he believe. Believe God? Yes, because God granted it. He believed that It's 129. <laughs> okay. Faith is part of the law requirement. Exodus 20. So did Jesus pay for all of our sins or not? And the only sin that we know that will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come spoke kind of in and thirty two. Blessed the Holy Spirit. And what is that? that? Was, uh, and what saying is, that Jesus did his miracles by the power of the uh, okay. the devil? And that's
1: an interpretation of Matt. There's a, we've gone through that and we've talked about it at as best we can. And I think it says something very different. That's that's really? old, old, absolutely the, Matt. But I don't want to debate the, you on a though. I'll show
2: you something Matt, that you may not be aware of. Matt,
1: we have a call. There, this is the caller part of the show. Okay. If you are a Calvinist, how do you know? that you are going to be saved, or if you're a Calvinist, how do you know that you have been one who is saved? Now, I know you've heard this question. Explain to our audience how how you know you've been one of the elect.
2: Because I'm saved. Okay. It's that simple? simple? Okay, I'm I'm saved saved. too, but I'm not a Calvinist. Well, just because you're not a Calvinist doesn't mean you can't be saved. Okay, and just because people are saved doesn't mean they're all Calvinists. But as far as this perspective goes, when someone says to a Calvinist, "How do you know you're saved, or how do you know you're one of the elect?" Uh, because I'm saved. But how I'll does know they
1: How do they know they're saved as a Calvinist, Matt? Well, well
0: yeah. I know I'm saved because the
2: blood of Christ was shed. I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is cleansed me of my sins. He showed me His love. I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostatic union, the communicatio with the imputation of Christ's uh, righteousness to me, my uh, sin imputed to Him on the cross. All these these doctrines of the faith, which First Corinthians two fourteen says the unbeliever cannot receive, or understand, or believe. So, what you
1: just said there, if I can summarize and correct me if I'm wrong. You really know you're saved if you embrace all those things you just mentioned.
2: No. I didn't say, uh, no, this is an issue of logic. I did not say you're saved if you embrace all those. Okay. I said you're saved if you know, because First Corinthians 2.14 says a natural man does not receive the things of God. He does not. They don't. So, so They don't like it. You're right. Unbelievers don't believe in the deity of Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection for our sins. Christians believe that. So I believe that. And I'm a believer because I believe that. And so th- th- that kind of thing, along with other doctrines, that unbelievers just are not going to, to, uh, to accept. One, one final question,
1: and this was brought up by a pastor who attended when you were here in town. And by the way, thanks again for coming, uh, because it's really opening up eyes and hearts to your views and to some things I'm saying, et cetera. But the pastor said something really interesting, and she said, listen— If you have been elected or if you have been saved, if you're in the body of Christ, then what does does Calvinism, what does it mean? Why Why even talk about it? Why even bother ourselves with all this? If you have made it in, why even talk about it? Why not focus on saving those or sharing, in your case, sharing with those who haven't heard?
2: Well... I was invited to talk about Calvinism, but my focus is not Calvinism. My focus is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this context of being invited onto a show to talk about that, and then someone says, why Calvinism? Because I was invited on a show to speak okay. about it. All
1: right, That's wait, wait a second. I've got to make one clarification. Matt has repeated this four times, and I like truth. I was contacted by a couple who wrote an email and said, Matt would like to be on your show to discuss this. I want to make that very clear. I did not invite Matt to come on the show and discuss Calvinism. That's a very important, I have the email, you can read it. So I just want to okay. make so we can talk clearly on this matter. I don't want it to seem like I called and say, hey, come on. And, we don't do that. All right. So <laughs> yeah, It doesn't hey, matter, Matt. Truth matters.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And- that's what right, I. Yeah, and Nathan and Lindsay, you know, they were great and awesome. They arranged everything. They did. I love them. Yeah, they're great folks. And so, you know, that's why I'm on this show, is, is in order to clarify the issues of Calvinism. Yeah. And that, that's it. But if you were to be hang out with me for a week here at the house, you'd know I rarely mention it unless someone calls at the office here and then I, I talk about it or go on the radio show. Someone asks me and I talk about it. Great answer. <laughs>
1: My brother, we are out of time. You're always enlightening. You're so well informed. I know you love the Lord. Your wife loves the Lord. Grateful to Nathan and Lynette. We're going to come back next week talk about Limited Atonement. We'll see
5: you then. Stop, yeah. guys. I'm going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy. The storm's rising, the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know, and I can feel the
1: Okay, listen, uh, some good news for our friends in the United Kingdom.
0: Take a look at this short spot. uh,
1: It's on Kindle now, thanks to Seth and his uh, ingenuity on getting our books on Kindle and these different uh, delivery systems but it's really important for the people in the UK and people overseas because it cuts down on shipping books over there which is very expensive and so you can just go on there now and get it online and uh, and understand that we're going to get right into it so let me uh, let's begin with a prayer God we uh, seek you and love you and need you we pray as we continue to talk both sides of the argument on Calvinism that you'll in your spirit and open up uh, the uh, eyes of the heart, as our sister Josephine just said, to people who are seeking for truth. We pray that you will do this for us, Lord, and, and uh, bless those people who are struggling. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we're uh, in the middle of talking about Calvinism, the tulip, the T, the U. Tonight is the L. We're going to start with Brother Matt Slick, and he's going to give, uh, we recorded Matt, And then I had some trouble with my recording, so I'm going to reiterate what I said. I haven't watched what Matt said, so this isn't a response to him. But we're going to watch Matt first and hear what he has to say about the limited atonement part of Calvinism, and then come back and I'll do my shtick and then we'll open up the phone lines. I want to say something. Matt is a brother in Christ. He uh, is a Calvinist, which I completely reject. But, you know, I reject other things that brothers and sisters believe, and you reject stuff I believe, and you might be a Calvinist or a Arminiist or a Reconciliationist. There's a lot of, you know, it's really by the love that we're going to be known, and so we hope that that will abide. And so uh, show Matt slick respect. Here he is.
2: All right. So now what I could do is present the L in Tulip, T-U-L-I-P, limited atonement. and. This is one of my favorite topics because to me it makes so much sense. Now, Christians know that people go to hell. You can go to Mark 3.29. You can go to Matthew 25.46, Revelation 14.11. We know that people go to hell. They can't go to hell if they have no sin. They can't go to hell and be punished, generic punishment, hell. They can't go to hell if there is no sin debt given to them. Now, that's an important concept. So let me go into what limited atonement is. I'm going to flesh this out, hopefully. Limited atonement is, in the Reformed perspective, the teaching that Jesus only bore the sin and paid for the sin of the elect, that he did not pay for the sin of everybody who ever lived. That's the teaching. So what Reformed people do is limit the scope. What the non-Reformed people do is limit the power. Both believe in a limited atonement. The non-reformed will say, no, he died for everybody, he bore everybody's sin, and it's just up to the individual and his wisdom and his ability to pick God. And if they accept that gift, well, then it's applied to them. So it's a conditional kind of atoning work. So the blood of Christ is powerful, but not so powerful that for all for whom it's atoned, or for all for whom the blood is shed, it doesn't mean they automatically are saved, that their sins are automatically removed. It just means uh, that potential. So they limit the power of the blood of Christ. Or we Calvinists say, no, the, the, uh, the blood of Christ is so strong, is so powerful, that for all who Jesus bore the sins of them, they are going to heaven, period. So we have a limited view on the scope of the, the uh, atoning work. So let me get into this a little bit. I'm going to make a case here, hopefully, by going through Scripture. First of all, I want you to understand, sin is a legal problem. 1 John 3, 4, God says, that sin is lawlessness. It's breaking the law of God. Now, sin is not only a legal problem; it separates us from God. Isaiah 59:2 causes us to die. Ezekiel 18:4 and wages sin is death. Romans 6:23. Sin has an effect on the mind, a noetic effect of sin, and we have various things we die, etc. But it is a legal problem because we break the law of God. We have a legal problem. We need a legal solution. So Jesus, God in flesh, John 1, 1, and verse 14, Colossians 2, 9, Jesus is God in flesh. He became one of us by the incarnation, being made, Lord and the angels, Hebrews 2, 9, and made under the law, Galatians 4, 4. Very important. He was made under the law, Galatians 4, 4 says, under that law. He had to be circumcised. He had to go to Passover. He had to do various laws in the Old Testament that were obligated for men and women to do and perform because he was made under that law. Now we know that Jesus never sinned. You can go to first Peter two twenty two. He never sinned. He never broke the law of God. This means that his they call this his active obedience. He actively was obedient to every single aspect of that old Testament law and never broke any law, any way, any shape, anyhow, any time. He is sinless, he is perfect. Now remember, sin is breaking the law of God, first John three four, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans three twenty three. All of us have sinned. All of us are worthy of damnation. We're by nature children of wrath, Ephesians two three. So we have this legal problem. Again, we need a legal solution, and the legal solution is found in the person of Jesus, who's made under the law. Now what's interesting is that first Peter two twenty four says he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his stripes we are healed. So he bore our sin in his body. Sin is a legal debt. Now, in Matthew chapter six, verse twelve, and Luke eleven four, both of these accounts, what we have here is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, etc. Forgive us our debts, is what Jesus says in Matthew six and in Luke eleven four. He says, forgive us our sins. Debt is a and sin is hamartia in the Greek. Debt, legal debt. Forgive us our debts is what he says in one place, and forgive us our sins in another. Jesus equates sin with legal debt. Jesus equates sin with legal debt. So does Paul. We'll get to that. Now understand that's a very important concept. Sin is a legal debt. Because we break the law, there's a legal consequence. Now, I've got a question. Can legal debts be transferred? And yes, they can. So if I have a friend and I write a check for $100 and I hand it to him and he puts it in his bank account, $100 is now imputed to him. It's a theological term to impute, to reckon to another's account legally. Sin is a legal problem. Jesus was made under the law. He fulfilled the law. He never sinned. Our sin was born in his body. How do you bear sin? That's what it says. First Peter 2:24. He bore our sin. Simple. Sin is a legal problem. It's a debt. Ophilema. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. Our debts were legally transferred to Christ. Legally transferred to Christ. They were imputed to him. That's First Peter 2.24. Now, what Jesus said on the cross in John 19.30 was it is finished. He's on the cross. He's, he's bearing our sins and he's going to die because the wages of the sin of death is Romans 6.23. He's got to die. So he became sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin. And what he did there on that cross is say, it is finished. What's really interesting about that word in the Greek, it's a single Greek word, tetelestai. That word tetelestai, which is translated into the English, it is finished. The word tetelestai has been found on the bottom of ancient tax receipts, handwritten in, us, I saying a legal debt has been paid in full. A legal debt paid in full. Jesus paid the debt in full. Now, another verse really interesting is Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14 says this. It's talking about Jesus. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees, which was hostile to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Let me say this again. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, Consisting of decrees, which was hostile to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He took it out of the way on the cross. The certificate of debt, is the NASB I quoted. The certificate of debt in the Greek is the single word in Greek, paragraphon. And I have to show off here. That's a hopaxe That's a big fancy term for It's a word that occurs only once in a body of text. It only occurs right there in the entire Bible. perographon, a handwritten legal debt. a a legal, handwritten IOU of legal indebtedness that is canceled by Jesus on the cross. It cannot be canceled for everybody. Let me illustrate why. I call this coma man. Coma man. Coma man is on his way to the bank to pay his mortgage. He's got a mortgage that's, say, $100,000, and he's going to pay $1,000 this month. On his way to the bank, he gets in a bad car accident, and he ends up in a hospital for a month in a coma. While he is in that coma, a philanthropist hears about his problem, has mercy on him, has compassion on him, and goes to the bank, talks to the bank manager, and writes a check for $100,000 and pays off this man's debt. Now, question, is his debt canceled? Yes. That's what Colossians 2.14 says, having canceled the certificate of debt. Cancelled. Okay? Cancelled. Is it existing anymore? No. Can the man be held accountable for a debt that doesn't exist anymore? No. If he did, that would be immoral. That would be illegal. That would be wrong. Coma man wakes up, miraculous recovery. He realizes he hasn't paid his debt. He goes to the bank, miraculous recovery. Hey, I was in a coma for a month. Here's my check. The teller says, oh, hey, you know what? Your debt's been paid. He says, well, I don't like that. Too bad. Too bad. Well, I want you to take my payment. We can't. The debt doesn't exist anymore. If the bank were to claim that debt or to say, look, we'll take the payment, that would be wrong. If the debt has been canceled for everybody who ever lived, John 3, 16, we'll get to that. If it's been canceled for everybody who ever lived, then nobody can go to hell ever, because that would mean the debt had been canceled, and you can't go to hell and be punished for a debt that has no existence. They have to go straight to heaven upon their death, period. Because you cannot be held responsible for a debt that doesn't exist. People say, well, it's a gift. doesn't say it's a gift. The gift is eternal life. But the debt has been canceled. Is the blood of Christ sufficient to cleanse us of all? Certainly it is. But did he legally bear the sins of everybody? No. He only bore the sin of those who died with him, Romans 6.6. 6. We have been crucified with Christ. Only those who were the elect who are unconditionally called, predestined to salvation, are the ones whom Jesus bore the sin of and canceled the debt, Colossians 2.14, and removed the enmity between God and man, Ephesians 2.15. Now some say, but Matt, 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 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believe in him would have everlasting life. He loved the world. I agree he loves the world. What does it mean to a Jew? So I ask people this question. Who was Jesus sent to? Was he sent to the world? No. He says in Matthew 15:24 he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Covenant, covenant is important. A covenant is a pact or an agreement between two or more parties. The Messiah was sent covenantally to Israel, not to the world, not to the Egyptians, not to the Assyrians. He was sent covenantally. Now, hear what I'm saying. Covenantally, he was sent only to Israel. Israel broke the covenant, so we were then grafted in, Romans 8, we were then adopted, Romans 8. We were then made partakers of this. Now, this is prophesied in Genesis twelve three, 3, which, which is spoken of by Paul in Galatians 3, 8, through some homework there. But the thing is that covenantally, Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel because of Matthew fifteen twenty four, That's exactly what Jesus says. He was not sent to the world. What's a Jew thinking? Jews are walking down the road talking to each other, hey, the Messiah is coming. He's coming for us. He's coming for the people of Israel. Right, and it's a boy, did you hear what Bob says? What? coming for Egypt. What? Does he not know the scriptures? The Messiah is coming for Israel. So when the Jew says he came for the whole world, it means all the nations, all the groups, and out of all the nations and out of all the world are the elect whom Jesus bore the sins of, legally having them imputed to him on that cross. He died, and those elect are the ones who redeemed. Otherwise, if you have the redemptive work of Christ being such that everybody's sins were imputed to Christ and he paid the price for everybody's sins, then the sin debt of everybody is canceled because that's what the Bible says in Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt. If it's canceled, it doesn't exist anymore. If it doesn't exist anymore, you cannot be held responsible for it. And it was canceled at the cross, not when you believe. Colossians 2.14 having canceled up a certificate of debt, having nailed it to the cross, that's when it was canceled. This is the sovereign plan and will of God. It was not canceled when you just apply it to yourself by the wisdom of your own faith and ability. It doesn't become canceled when you believe. It's canceled at the cross because that's what Colossians 2.14 simply declares is the case. If you don't like that, go to the store, get a little razor blade, or a marker, go to Colossians 2.14, and just get rid of it. Just see, we don't need that, go to John 19.30. He paid it right there and said, it is finished. To Tetelestai, legal debt, paid in full, get rid of it. A legal debt paid in full cannot be held against you. If Jesus bore the sin of everybody who ever lived, then everybody who ever lived must go to heaven. They cannot be punished ever for a sin that does not exist. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, from all eternity, has called his people to himself. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, he predestined us. He chose us. And Jesus, who was sent by the Father in the blood of the eternal covenant, spoken of in Hebrews 13:20, where Jesus in John 6 said, I came to do the will of the Father who sent me, and all that he has given me will lose none. We'll get to that later. The ones given to the Son to redeem, Jesus did that exact thing. There's no mistakes with God. There's no abortions in heaven with God. There's no get canceled and then it's uncanceled with God. You can't be saved and then not saved because that would mean all your sins were not forgiven when you were saved. You can't have that happen. God doesn't sit up there in heaven and roll dice and sit there and say, what's going to happen? I'll look in the future. I'm going to see what's going to happen. Your view of God is small. Then your view of salvation, predestination, and election will also be small. God, the sovereign king of the universe, declares what will be, and he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. He unconditionally elects. He chooses the people he wants. He redeems the ones that he does. And he does that in a loving way. People say, well, that's not loving. Yes, it is. Because the simple fact is this, that God has no obligation to love us, but he does because of what's in him. He loves us because of how good he is. He loves us because of his nature, not because of our goodness. He redeems us because of his goodness, not because of ours. He elects us because of what's in him, not because of what's in us. And he redeems those and he pays for those whom he's called to himself and guarantees the cancellation of that sin debt so that we can, without worry, without fear, enjoy forever with God in heaven, without having to ever worry about falling from his incredible grace because of our incompetence or our sin or our whatever. God does not leave our salvation up to us in the whim of sinful creatures, but he takes it upon himself, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who's the author of our salvation. He's the one in whom we lean, and he's the one in whom I trust completely for everything because he's my Savior who's unconditionally called me and who has definitely, definitely atoned for my sins. I'm eternally secure in him. We'll get to that later. But I praise my Lord Jesus Christ for the work that he did on the cross where he canceled my debt of sin on that cross and then infallibly brought me into the faith by granting that I believe that one to <laughs> and working faith in me. John six twenty eight twenty nine And again, I'm going to say to this, amen and amen. Thank you. All
1: right. Thank you, uh, Matt, for that. I just want to say that I agree with everything Matt said, except that what Christ did was limited. I think he made great sense with canceling out the debt. I think it makes great sense that if a debt's been canceled out, then you can't be punished for that sin. And I think sin has been wiped away. But I want to start by saying I think Scripture plainly teaches that the scope is not limited, nor is the power of Christ's atonement limited. And that's the question. The point being debated tonight is did Jesus atone for the sins only of those who the Calvinists would say were elected, or did he atone for the sin of the whole world? Now, Scripture plainly talks about Jesus and his, those who are his. His sheep in John 10, his church in Ephesians 5, his people in Matthew 1, his elect in Romans 8, his own in John 17. We know that there are those who are his. These verses certainly have their application and are true, but to use them as a proof text that he paid only for the sins of the elect is kind of akin to saying Walt Disney built Disneyland for his children, which he did, and only for his children, which obviously is not true, you see? And so... There is an elect, and there are those who are his, and there is his church. The question is, did Christ suffer for those outside of those who are his sheep? And the Calvinist does make an outstanding point that we have to consider in the church. Why would God have his son suffer for sins of those he is never going to elect. Why would God do that? Brother Slicks take, takes the position that if a ransom has been paid, the debt has been stamped paid in full, then it has been paid in full, and if paid in full, the whole world then would have to benefit from Christ's redemptive work. And to, all I can say to that is exactly Exactly. The whole world does benefit by Christ's redemptive work. They just don't know it yet, or they haven't come to believe it yet. Now, I am not saving all are saved. Matt spoke about, listen, if the debt has been paid, nobody can suffer in hell or in the lake of fire for sins if the debt has been paid, stamped paid in full. But what he isn't, what he's not, what he's doing is he's not looking at the fact that Christians have two commandments that we're to follow, and only two. 1 John three twenty two twenty three 23 tells us what those commandments are, to believe and to love. We do not go to hell for our carnal sins, for banging the neighbor's wife, getting drunk, uh, lusting, stealing homosexuality, that was paid for. All of the stuff, all of it was paid for by Christ for all people. The reason people go to hell after this life is not for those. It has been taken care of universally. They go because they break the two commandments that Jesus left us with. Believe on him and love the new commandment. Love. Seth, you've got to turn that off. It's driving me nuts. Okay. So he says that Christ paid for all sin, but we know that it is. I mean, James says, listen, if you know it's to do good and you don't do it, that is sin. So we know sin can exist in the Christian's life but what, or in a person's life now since Christ has paid for it. But what sin is it? Failing to believe, failing to love. Okay? So... This thinking of the Calvinists, if Jesus paid for all sin, it automatically says all for whom the payment was made would be redeemed somehow. I'm not sure that would hold water. Uh, In other words, universal atonement is rejected by the Calvinists because Jesus would be defeated because the way they would see it is he saved everybody, but not everybody's redeemed. And so, therefore, his, his work was kind of a mockery to him. And God would be unfair and sending people to hell for sins that they all paid for. In order to survive in Scripture and to read through, the Calvinist has to take Scripture and take three words and add some words to them. Every time you read all, every time you read the world, and every time you read whosoever in Scripture, the Calvinist has to add of the elect. So when you read, he is the Savior of all, the Calvinist adds, of the elect. He's the Savior of the world, of the elect. He's the Savior of whosoever, of the elect. It's always of the elect when a Calvinist reads Scripture. Now, that's not what Scripture says. So again, how do Calvinists interpret the Bible when it says Christ is the Savior of all men, and it does say that? They say he's the savior of all men who have been elected. They read that into the text, but that's not what the text says. World then refers again to the world of the elect, etc. So we can see from this that exceptions and additions have to be made to Scripture by a Calvinist in order for them to say Scripture upholds this. You notice that Matt used an articulation that is legal, debt being erased, therefore no one can. It's very rational. It's very logical. You notice he didn't quote a lot of scriptures uh, regarding this because there's too many that suggest he is the Savior of the world. He did suffer for the sins of the entire world. There are certain scripture passages that are very difficult for anyone who is a Calvinist to fix. Let Let me share them with you. Uh, John 1.29, John the Baptist says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the sins of the cosmos, not the sins of the area. Ironically, the founder of Calvinism, John Calvin, said this about this passage. Here's the quote. He, John the Beloved, uses the word sin in a singular number for any kind of iniquity as if he had said that every kind of unrighteousness which alienates men from God is taken away by Christ. Now listen, and when he says the sin of the world, he extends this favor indiscriminately to the whole human race. That's from the founder of Calvinism. All The all-familiar John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only and begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Every Greek lexicon are unanimous in that the world means humankind, not the world of the elect. Every single one says he so loved the world. Therefore, we can just tacitly agree that his, his offering had to have been for the world. Regarding this verse, John Calvin said, God is unwilling that we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because he has appointed his son to be the salvation of the world. Calvin also said, the word world is again repeated that no man may think himself wholly excluded if he only keeps the road of faith. We can see some quotes like this that modern-day Calvinism and its ivory tower intellectualism has strayed from Calvin's Calvinism, that Calvin didn't really even support limited atonement himself, but the modern-day scholars have embraced this notion to make it really seem like a seamless body of theology. It's similar to Mormonism. Mormonism today isn't Joseph Smith and Brigham Young's Mormonism. Well, the Calvinists today aren't the same as the Calvin uh, of, of uh, from at the beginning. So many passages indicate that the gospel is to be universally proclaimed. And this supports universal atonement. In John 8:12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Again, cosmos, not the light of only the elect and the rest of remaining in darkness, but he's the light of the whole world. Uh, Romans 5, 6 says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It doesn't make much sense to read this as saying Christ died for the ungodly of the elect. Okay? Romans 5.18 says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so so also the result of one act, the righteousness was justification that brings life for all men not all men of the elect. So we see that Adam's sin brought the sin nature upon all of us, so Christ's nature, it says here, brings justification to life for all men. It's amazing. First, Second Corinthians 5.14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 1 Timothy 3, two, 3, 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, five, 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men the testimony given in its proper time first timothy 4:10. we have put our hope in the living god who is the savior of all men listen especially those who believe all men especially those who believe that scripture really throws it down saying he gave that salvation that blood for all men especially for those who are of his body, of his church, his elect, his sheep who follow him, but he gave it especially for them, but he gave it to all others. I don't know how you can be a Calvinist and justify these. Uh, Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, not just the elect. Hebrews 2.9, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste the death for everyone. Listen to 2 Peter 3:9 really closely. Ready? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That in the Greek is not his permissive will. That's his expressed will. He wants everybody, everybody But the coup de grace, the death blow to the Calvinist, this is a death blow. to limited atonement. You ready? 1 John 2.2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know how Calvinism has been able to exist in the presence of passages like this. Did you note that it says, leave that scripture up there, Burrell, if you would, our sins and not only ours. So John is talking to believers there. He is is atoning sacrifice for our sins, believers, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You can't throw this away with logic and with a, a, a superstructure of intellectualism and forming a methodology to approach God through a system. You can't do it. Um, Just a natural reading of that verse, without imposing theological presuppositions into it, shows us that the atonement was for all. Then One more thing. If one point of Calvinism is proven faulty, the whole superstructure falls. If God has totally depraved people that he elects and only them, then the atonement has to be limited. If limited atonement is proved incorrect or perseverance of the saints is proven incorrect, then the whole system falls. There's no such thing as 4.3, point or 1.0 Calvinism. That's ridiculous. That's like saying, well, I don't know what it's like saying. Okay, Isaiah 53.6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? So now listen. This verse does not make sense unless we read it to say that the same all that went astray, we all have gone astray, that's what all Calvinists will preach that, is the same all for whom the Lord died. All in the first line is the all of the second line, and there it says, The the Lord laid upon the iniquity of us all. All have gone astray. That's not just talking about the elect. A guy named Miller uh, Erickson put it this way. This passage, speaking of Isaiah 53, 6, is especially powerful from a logical standpoint. It is clear that the extent of sin is universal. It is specified that every one of us has sinned. It should also be noticed that the extent of what will be laid on the suffering servant exactly parallels the extent of sin. It is difficult to read this passage and not conclude that just as everyone sins, everyone is also atoned for. 2 Peter 2.1, it seems Christ even paid the price of redemption for teachers who deny him. Ready for this one? Peter says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. This has nothing to do with the elect. We're talking about guys who are teaching false doctrine and heresies and trying to bring people down, and they're doing it on purpose. And he says they have denied the Lord who bought them. Calvinists would say, well, none of the elect would ever be doing this, teaching these damnable heresies and denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Exactly. This passage will be used again when we talk about once they've always saved. saved. On, in Acts 17.30, Paul on Mars Hill said, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. I'm going to wrap this up. All people everywhere to repent, not just the elect. Let me, let me ask you something. If Christ died only for the elect, how can they, the offer of salvation be made to people without some sort of insincerity or artificiality or dishonesty being involved? Is it not improper to offer salvation to everyone if in fact Christ did not die to save everyone? What I mean by that is how could we ever say to somebody, Jesus died for you? We can't. You can't share the gospel message. You can't say even to people in the church, Jesus died for you. Because if it's a limited atonement, we don't know who he died for. And so it completely affects sharing the good news with people. You, have to, you can't say that to people. You can say, Jesus died for the sins of the elect. That's what you say. And then the person stands there and says, well, I wonder if I'm part of that party. You know? And it's just a quagmire. You see, all these systems always produce an artificiality in God. They always have him doing something. In Mormonism, it was God said, hey, don't eat of the, tr- uh, free, the, the fruit of the tree uh, of knowledge of good and evil. Oh, please eat it. Please eat it. please. There's trickery involved with God with these systems. Well, there's trickery with us. We're supposed to share the good news, but we're sharing it to people, and we tell them Christ died for them, but we don't know that he really did. Under the teaching of limited atonement, no Christian has the right to tell
2: another person Jesus died for them. We may be wrong, so uh,
0: There's theological presuppositions
1: that are read into every one of these um, arguments. you have to read into it that it was only the elect because God only picked the elect because we were totally depraved and that and and all of these things, and you have to see it in that way in order to read these passages and embrace them. Unlimited atonement has been held by a majority of scholars since uh, the early church history. All the reformers of the the Christian faith, if you like that kind of thing, they held to universal atonement. Every one of them except for, uh, uh, well, he wasn't a reformer, but early church fathers, probably Augustine, was the only one who didn't hold to it. And that's one of the reasons why it comes up in Calvinism. Um, early church father, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, Athanasius, Cyril of Jerusalem, Gregory, Basil, Ambrose, all taught universal atonement, if that's important to you. It's not important to me. So two quick points to reiterate. We'll open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. If one point of Calvinism fails, it all fails. If you can find passages at all that support a limited, I mean, a, lim- a universal atonement, and like I think we've shown here, I think we can see there's something wrong in the picture. It's not that all of Calvinism is wrong, but this is, is significant. Secondly, and this is very, very, very important, when it comes to Jesus' atoning work, there's only two options. Using that and his, very, his great use of scripture, using his logic, just listen to this. It, his atonement was either limited and God only atoned for the elect, and therefore they are saved and no others, or the other option can only be that it was universal, and therefore the debt was paid for all, and all will in some respect or another be reconciled to God by and through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Arminianism, that says he suffered for the sins of the world, but not all will come to him, is a fail and 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 for the reasons that Matt articulated, the debt has either been paid in full and effectively for all or for only for some. Think about the implications of this as we continue on. Alright. Do we have a are we going to show a spot? Showing a spot. Is Brother Slick on? All right. We have Matt Slick waiting for us. Check the spot out. We'll come back. We'll take your calls and questions.
0: So it's not saying that God created evil people
1: that are not elected for his will and pleasure. If so,
0: where is the justice and grace for God to be innocent? It's hard to understand what the question is. Sorry. Sorry. Um, if he,
2: if he's been out a long time. You well, read of it. It was a long read, so I don't know what the exact question was. Oh well, put, put,
1: put, put it on the phone line. Got it. We're going to Jarrett in New Orleans. Jarrett, you're on the heart of the matter.
0: Um, I guess I have a question for Matt. Is he with you? Fairly. Okay, uh, my question
3: is about in Romans 5 when Paul is talking about how all are in Adam and that the free gift have come upon all men. Specifically in verse 18 it says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men, condemnation Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. My question is, is the the all that the condemnation came upon, is that every single human being? And if so, how would the all
0: that the free gift came upon not be every single human being? correct, you're probably out of the King James, the words the
2: free gift came, they're not in the Greek, it's not what it is saying there that's an interpolation by translators who apparently don't understand what the text is really saying, and don't want to because of what it actually says, and what it actually says in there, there are two sentences with a conjunction that says um, to one transgression Uh, uh, can you hear me? can you hear me? okay, can you hear me? Can you hear me? All right. Can they hear me? No, uh, I couldn't hear anything from that. I can hear you now,
4: though. Well,
2: test, test, testing, testing, testing. All right. Romans 5:18. Yep. We'll you
0: to the audience. to you.
1: The audience can hear us. Uh,
2: you can't hear it over your phone, but go ahead, Matt. I'm, uh, let's just say exceptionally familiar with that exact verse, Romans five eighteen. uh, in the Greek, where it actually says is, uh, through one transgression, condemnation to all men. So also through one act of righteousness, justification of life to all men. There's no verb there. The King James, he quoted the free gift came, the free gift came. They're not in the Greek. Um, I have an article written on it on my website, calvinistcorner.com. All you've got to do is go to the article, um, All Men Saved, and it goes through that in the Greek and explains what's going on. What's happening there is Adam represented some, or everybody, Jesus represented his people. It has to do with federal headship. I'm not trying to snow people with a bunch of theological terms, but the fact is, this is what the Bible teaches. It teaches that Christ represented individuals and uh, Adam represented everybody. Because it says... Um, it says, uh, through one transgression, and that's what the NASB says, there resulted condemnation to all men. So also through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, universalists like to use that verse in particular, and I, trust me, I, I go to town for an hour on this. But what it's saying there, without you having studied it or no is a doctrine called federal headship. Go to my website and look it up. Federal headship. The male represents the descendants. Adam represented everybody. Jesus only represented his people. Because Jesus said he came only to save, or he came to save those whom the Father had given him. That's John 6. And he says he doesn't pray for everybody. He only prays for the ones that the Father's given him. That's in John 17, 9 and 20. So he doesn't pray for everybody. He's only praying for the ones given to him. So the ones who are given to him are the second all. You may think I'm joking. You may think I'm off. But if you read Romans 5, 16, 17, 18, and 19, you'll see that Paul the Apostle does two weird things. He says the many twice, and the many means two different things, and all means two different things. And just look, it's complicated. I got an article on it. I can't go through it too much right here, but it's on uh, my Calvinist Corner website called All Men Saved Article.
3: Thank you,
1: Matt so much for calling in. God bless you. Matt, <laughs> using the same question that Jared had for his passage, how do you do First John 2, 2? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world.
2: We look at it contextually because the Jews understood that the Messiah was coming only for the nation of Israel. Jesus said in Matthew fifteen twenty four, He said that He was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice what He says: Israel. Israel is the nation He was sent. That's you can go to Matthew fifteen twenty
1: four and wait, read it. Wait, 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 John. Uh, this, this is the, I was telling somebody. This is one of the difficulties. ...of having these kinds of discussions when Scripture is cited... ...Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture... After scripture ...because we're not able to look at context either. But, well, but, but Matt, matter. John, was he writing to the Jews here? Can I, put,
2: can I answer the question now?
1: Well, but contextually, was John writing to the Jews here?
2: He was writing to all kinds of people. Okay,
1: so if he was said he, he was writing to believers, wasn't he? Wouldn't you agree with that?
2: A propitiation is a sacrifice that, retur- that removes the wrath of God... That's what a propitiation is, from the Greek holosmos. If you want to go to 1 John 2, 2 and say he's a propitiation for our sins, not only for us, but the sins of the whole world, then automatically, by definition, every single sin of every single person is automatically removed. And nobody can I go agree. to suffer at all. What's the it's problem? Because universalism is not true. I'm not, this is not universalism. Because it can't be that everybody is saved if every single individual is propitiated. We'll wait, what wait, just wait, wait, wait. The Bible interprets the Bible. Wait, wait, wait,
1: and wait. Just slow, slow down, that' Let give you the answer. Well, well, your answers are not just staying on the thing. Let's just stay on this verse for a second. I'm trying
2: to. Okay. There's two ways to look at it. One is by looking at the word propitiation, which is the Greek word halasmos. It means the sacrifice that removes wrath. If the wrath of God is removed for everybody who ever lived, then nobody could be punished. Okay. That means everybody would have to right away when they die, just go to heaven. Okay, now wait. Now so let me ask a follow-up question.
1: The wrath of God has been removed for all men for the sins that they have committed. But the sin of faithlessness, which we are commanded to believe and to love, has not been removed. Why is that so difficult? We want that. Well, first John perfect? First In John our, you've, no, asked, no. you've asked me a question. First John two twenty-two twenty-three says this is his commandment that we believe and that we love, as he gave us commandment. So this is what it says. We don't have a bunch of commandments. We don't have the law. And Christ paid for the sin on the cross. We all agree with that. So if he paid for the sin, then what is the sin? We know scripture, we know the apostles certainly talked about it. It's the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is all through scripture. So why I understand that the wrath has been removed for the fornicating and the drunkenness and the lying and the steal the wrath has been removed for that, but the people in hell aren't being punished for those. They're being punished for their faithlessness and failure to love. Can you respond to that?
2: Is faithlessness a sin?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's the chin. Did he for all sin? He didn't pay for faithlessness. So you're saying he did not pay for all sin? Uh, that's okay. Then you have a limited atonement. I have, I guess, a limited um,
2: you have covering. Limited atonement. Yeah, yeah because, because atonement you, is if, is if you don't believe... Except for certain sins. If
1: you don't believe and you fail to love, you're breaking his commandment. Now, you're, are, you, su- are you suggesting that we don't have a new commandment?
2: No, I didn't, I didn't suggest that. Okay, well, now I if
1: we have a commandment, wait, if we have a commandment, don't we have to follow it? And if we don't, aren't we breaking it? And isn't that yes. sin? Yeah. And, okay, and that's sin.
0: Yeah,
2: it's not, yeah. 1st okay. three 4. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, lawlessness. So we are commanded in the Old Testament to believe. We're supposed to serve the true and living God. So what you're telling us is that all sins are taken care of except for the sin of unbelief. Can you show me a scripture that says that?
1: Yeah, I think that the one that you quoted last week says that clearly, but you interpreted it differently.
2: Which verse is that last week? The
1: unforgivable sin.
2: No, that's Matthew 12:22 to 32, saying that Jesus did the miracles by the power of the devil. No, that's how you
1: interpret that, Matt. That's what it says. No, it, it, that's, that's yes, cast, he's he's it, out, Matt you casting out casting out demons, and Matt, you say you're doing it by the power of the devil. He says blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will be forgiven. Matt, I've taught on it. I can. I mean, I'm not prepared to teach on it now, but I've taught on it. Okay, you are Matt, but you're going to teach on it your way. And my my problem is is that I read the same scripture. I look at the Greek. I might not be as smart as you, but I read scripture that says, you know, He paid for not only our sins, but the sins for the whole world. And I believe and the word it. The whole world means all nations. it's, a, it's the cosmos Jews. there. It's not nation. It's not the G there. That's how it's used? No, it's not. No, it would it would it not is. use it would not use cosmos there, Matt. If it but meant. You know. Because cosmos means something different than the geographical what area. What does world mean? What do you mean, what does world mean? What does it mean? What does the word Well, it depends. If it uses, two, there's a few different Greek words, and if they're used, it could mean the nations. It could mean the geography, the area. But when cosmos is used, it means the world, the, the heavens and the earth. Am I wrong on that?
2: Words mean what they mean in context. You have to be careful not to
0: do.
1: But wait a second. We're talking about the actually. You you use a lot of words. You say, uh, it means this, and it means you use a lot of Greek words. So I'm using your Greek words too. And when the word cosmos is used, it is not speaking of nations, and it's not speaking of an area, the G. It's not speaking. It's speaking of everything, isn't it, Matt, cosmos?
2: Depends. There's at least five different uses in the wor- in the Bible. I've done a whole study on it. It's on my website. I believe that. I believe it's It means every individual or limited area or all nations or secular realm or the planet Earth. Okay. Depending on the context. Okay. got to be careful not to insert into 1 John 2, 2 what you want it to say. Okay. I'm not inserting anything.
1: I'm just reading
2: it. Yeah. And are. I think I'm the
1: insertion is world. coming... I do believe the insertion is coming from the Calvinist side.
2: I believe the insertion is coming from you. I know you do. I know
1: you do. And here's the thing.
2: But what does it mean?
1: The thing I'm trying to point out, Matt, is that this is the the reason I'm having you on the show. I realize that you can defend Calvinism tooth and nail. I know you're well versed in it, and I know your skill. That's not the point. The point is I'm going to see it differently, and other people are going to see it even differently than you and I. When are we going to stop dividing each other up on this stuff and say, okay, we'll try our best to understand it. We'll teach, but we're going to embrace people's views as long as they accept the gospel of Jesus Christ.
2: Well, that's what I teach. I preached two days ago at Calvary Chapel here in Eagle okay. in Idaho. Okay? I'm a Calvinist, but I preached at Calvary Chapel. Calvinism is not my concern. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was asked to come on the show, and we're talking about Calvinism. You weren't asked to come is, on the show. Yeah, the, whatever. The thing is, not whatever. It, well, the thing is, if we're going to discuss Calvinism, then it needs to be accurately represented.
1: I think I think it's accurately represented by you, and by I you. think I, by you, and, yeah. and that's why we, we we had you on here to accurately present it. But it doesn't mean I'm just going to sit there and go. Of
2: course not.
1: That's right. So I'm giving you the way. I see it, and the way
2: others who are just as smart yeah. as you see it... Well, let me ask you something here. Yeah. You went to Second 2 Peter 2.1, denying those who bought him, right? Yeah. Did you know that Peter, First Peter and Second Peter, quotes the Old Testament a great deal? So Peter is obviously referring to the Old Testament a lot. Are you familiar with Deuteronomy 32.6? It says, Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Talk about the Jews. Is he not your father who bought you? He has made you and established you. He bought the Jews, but it doesn't mean they were all saved. He purchased them out and got them out of the bondage of Israel. Okay. Peter very well, just be referring back to that allusion. Okay. All right. To the Old Testament, since he quoted the Old Testament so many times in 1st and 2nd Peter. And you know what I loved about that? What you just
1: said is Peter very well could have. Yes, you, he could have. Okay, he could have. But see, my point, Matt, is we don't know a lot of things. We think we do, but we don't. And so what has to abide?
2: So
1: mean love has to abide. This is the whole purpose for this, in my opinion. Your, your purpose was to explain Calvinism to everybody. My purpose is to show we're going to debate on these things until the cows come home. But in the end, do I love you? Do you love me in Jesus' name? If that cannot... If that, but see, the Calvinists that I have met do not typically embrace this point of view or this perspective. They want well, war. They want war. Not you, Matt. No, 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 no. I don't yes. know any
2: Calvinists who want war.
0: You don't know
1: any who want war? No. Well, how have, I, how have I been in Christianity half your time, and everyone I meet wants war? I don't yeah, understand so. that statement.
2: Wants war? I don't understand. What, what do you mean by
1: war? Okay, all right. I'm serious. I, no, all right. We won't go down that road. Elliot in Canada is on line one, Matt. Let's see if we can take this call.
2: All right.
6: All
1: right. Elliot, you're on heart of the matter. Hi,
6: hey, thanks for
1: having me. Yes. Thank you, Elliot, for calling.
6: Um, I just wanted to say, uh, I
1: think it's important to note a difference
6: between just dying for everybody versus paying for everybody. Okay? Um, Noting that anything. difference when you go through scriptures like John two, um, I know. It, you can really reconcile it with the idea of limited atonement. I also wanted to uh, uh, point out just in First Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 10 that you brought up, I think that's a great example showing limited atonement. And you'll find that um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, he does the same thing again, separating two, ty- two types of elders. One group of elders are practicing and one are not. And the practicing elders are worthy of double honor. Not the non-practicing, he also separates widows just before that and slaves after that. So it's really consistent uh, with that. So it's just one of my thoughts, um, and it does answer your question. If, if he died only for the elect, well, he didn't. He died for everybody. He just paid only
1: for the elect. So we can say that Jesus died for everybody. And, and, and so if that's the case, Elliot, what, what's, what's the difference between the two? Well, dying is the offer of salvation. Jesus
6: died for everybody. The offer is available for everybody. Okay. There's only effectual for
1: those who are saved. That's interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. Good point, Elliot. Thank you so much for watching. Fair enough. And if you have a half second, if you could tell me what you mean by systems, I'd just really appreciate it because you said systems of thought and things like that. Me? Yeah, you said. Uh, when you oh, said I, I, think that. That, I think that when we uh, try to capture and systematize theology, Uh, I think we, God laughs. I think that uh, he has made things purposely um, arguable, and I think that uh, he has not given us all the answers, and I think he does that so that we will learn to get along and love each other in the face of theological differences. And so what I'm talking about is when someone comes in and tries to provide a system of this is what the system is, no matter what it is, it's going to have problems. That's what I meant by that, Elliot. Well, I would absolutely agree with that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Is Matt gone? No. Okay, Matt, one last question here. How, this came up before. I'm sorry, but someone wrote this in. How does Matt Flick know that he is the chosen elect besides him just believing he is?
2: All right, let's go over this again. Someone who's elect and saved, all right? Someone who's saved is, by definition, elected. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. You believe because you're elected to do so. God grants belief to us, Philippians 129. The believer affirms spiritual things, like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the death on the cross, the physical resurrection, the atoning sacrifice, justification by faith alone. These are basic Spiritual thing, the essential of the Christian faith that only people enlightened and redeemed believe and affirm. Since I believe and since I affirm those, it's a sign of regeneration. Since I confess Christ, since I promote Christ, pray to Christ as He's prayed to in the Bible, and am a disciple of His. I do so because God has manifested His election in me, granted me repentance, Second 2 Timothy 2:25. 2, granted that I believe Philippians 129, caused me to be born again, First 1 Peter 1, 1.3, and he has chosen me for salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13.
1: Okay, okay, Matt, a follow-up question to that is, there are people who uh, you would say that then they're elect, um, and they, they also do all of those things. And many, many, many people do all of those things. Probably billions of people who call themselves Christians believe, they pray, they have faith, they try to repent, would you say that everyone is elect who, who does those things that you said you do?
2: It's not an issue of doing. I didn't say do. What happens is, the, see, First Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man cannot receive the things of God. It pulls us down. The unbeliever does not believe Jesus Christ is God in flesh, died on the cross, rose from the dead for their sins. They okay, so every, believe that kind of a thing. So
1: everyone who says they do believe
2: no, that. I, I wouldn't say everyone who says they do. I would say everyone who does. So it's not. You said it's
1: not doing, but then you said it's not saying. Which is it?
2: It's the doing of belief, the actual act of believing. Who okay. really does believe it? Someone can recite the sentence. An, an atheist can recite the sentence Right. God. It like, doesn't mean he's saved. We're talking about those who actually believe it. That's what we're talking about. Okay,
1: and they say they actually believe like you were saying. That's how you know you're, you're one of the yeah. elect, Matt. Okay, yeah. so many, oh, many, no. many people claim that same thing. Are you saying... Are they all elect? Is this my question? I don't know.
2: I don't know if all people are elect to make the statement.
1: Well, how come they don't know they're elect,
2: but you do? I don't know if they know they're elect or not.
1: Well, they, some, they, some of them would say, I wonder about my salvation, but you don't. People often wonder about their salvation. Do you?
2: I have before many times. Do the elect? Yeah, I've actually wondered, Am I really saved? am I fooling myself? So the,
1: the elect don't know they're elect, then, just like every other
2: Christian. I did say the elect don't know they're the elect. You the elect. ask me if sometimes I falter, like any human being. Well,
1: oh, I get that. I, I get that. But if you know you're elect, it's pretty hard to falter. I can see saying I'm pre- being pretty sinful. I can say I'm failing in my flesh. I can see all that. But to say I'm not elect anymore, that's difficult. You I've can- never said that. I didn't say you did. What I'm saying is people have a problem with the claim of the elect because they want to know how you know when you really are in the same I boat. As you.
2: I know you, you did. You the witness of God in your own heart. But they you all know that God has called you, and you know that you're redeemed by the blood of Christ. And the only ones who can do that are the ones who have been granted that by God, who have been chosen I agree. by God to be given to the Son, whose Son can give to them that life. I, I know, and if people okay. want to say, how do you know technically they're elect, you know what? I give them the same answer, remember which way. The ones who hate the idea of God's sovereign election are the ones who continue to ask that question. Okay. No now, now now we've, we've
1: gotten done. to the heart it's of the matter.
2: So yes, what, you're,
1: what you're saying sovereignty Matt, of God or the sovereignty of what you're saying, Matt, is no, I'm not saying that. what you're saying then is, if you don't agree with calvinist uh, nope. positions. Nope. You're not elect. That's pretty no, much what, what you just summarized. I never say that. You pretty I mean, much never. said that. No. Nope. If you don't, do not... if you keep asking questions like this. No, no, no. Well, did what did say
2: you that. say? I did not say that. Just because someone's not a Calvinist doesn't mean they're not elect or not Christian. But I believe that those, i said, who resist the idea of God's election and God's sovereignty. Okay. They're the ones who have a problem.
1: Okay. So I, resist, resist I resist it greatly your definition of God's sovereignty and I resist greatly your definition of atonement and I regret greatly your definition of perseverance of the saints and of total depravity. I resist it,
0: but I'm going to tell tell you, I'm
1: going to tell you something, my brother, I resist this to my dying day, but I'm going to tell you something. I am sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love. And I am sold out for what he has done for me. And I know it. So what you just said does not hold water in this man's case. It might God. another. So, Matt, in my case, you, what you just said does not hold up.
2: That what you should not do is try and get me to answer for everybody when you say you're only going to answer for yourself. I, I can, can only answer for myself, not for everybody. But for you're them. representing... Know how, you understand? You know elect or not? You understand why people ask that question, don't I you? I understand why, because I have two opinions about that. One, they don't know the biblical revelation, and two... Those who openly, consistently resist the idea of God's sovereignty, they're the ones who want their own sovereignty. Okay, well, that's, it's just like,
1: and we're out of time, but what I am what met with here is it's just like Mormonism. That says if you question, if you don't really go into it, you are the one with the problem. That's not what I'm saying. It, really, Matt? I'm listening to you. I'm trying to listen closely. I'm not no. here to debate you. I'm listening to you, and you're saying... What are you doing? What? I'm not saying that, Sean. What are you saying, Matt?
2: Look, we are desperately wicked. You have a
1: simple heart. Right, okay. a simple That's going backward. Have a I just want to know how you am I... You and
2: I both want to be our own gods. We want to be... An
1: I don't want thing. to be my own god, Matt. That's not
2: true. I don't Any want to be my own of, god. In the issue and the issue of down deep in our hearts, we're the ones. We are. We have sin in our hearts. Oh, that's it. If, if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have to repent.
1: I get that. And and there's so many people who who repent and they believe and they all, and they question Calvinism. To no I end. end. I hate
2: to question Calvinism. I don't put Calvinism in the they
1: question. Your version of the sovereignty of God. Let me put it
2: that way. The sovereignty of God is that He has the right to do with His creation as He desires. He I understand right that, and He
1: is love, and He desires that all would be saved. The Scripture says.
2: And He can also harden people's hearts so they are not saved. Why would God course, do that? Of course,
1: because Why He's God? using them for His good purpose, and He will bring them around in the end. He Why does that with
2: all of parents? us. Well, he wants it. What did be say? Why did he send his living influence upon them? Second Thessalonians two. Because he there's needed more to it than just a simple. Here's a question. Here's a question. There's more to this.
1: It was to fulfill his purposes. It was to fulfill his purposes. man. I believe yes. in the sovereignty of God, but they I just don't sure. believe that it's limited and it's and it's narrow. I believe it is His love. It. it can overcome all these obstacles that Calvin has put up. Or Calvinism. Well, I'll tell you,
2: you what. Tell you what. Yeah. I don't believe Calvinism is an essential part of the, the gospel. I don't believe it's an essential part of Christianity. The Trinity is. Oh,
1: that, was a, that was called a bombshell. <laughs> Let's talk about the Trinity. I know, you, I, I I know you believe that. Come on. I, I, no, I'm not going to, Matt. You know, Come on, I'm, I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. <laughs> uh, Come on. You, you know, uh, it was a good effort. I know you believe, Matt, I know you believe, the Trinity is. I know you believe that. And I respect you for it, and I respect anybody who accepts the man-made term Trinity. I accept them as my brother in Christ, and that, that's all I'm going to say about it. Fine. Trinity it's
2: more important than Calvinism.
1: There, there are, but the problem is Calvinism is spreading, and I'm doing this for Mormons, Matt. Mormons come out of Mormonism, and they see Calvinism, ism, 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 and it's pushed down their throat, and they buy it, and then they find out, and oh, they wonder... Come on, Matt. I'm not going to. I don't know. I'm serious. I don't know anybody Well, it. you pushed it pretty strongly, actually. On the show, you have a Calvinist website. Forth. You have a Calvinist website. Yes, Most theological forth. schools are Calvinist today. Reformed is, is coming out there. And I just think that it's a disservice to people who are searching for truth. Look, at, we are way over time, Matt. I'm way over. Way over. You've done an a, a, a admirable job. I appreciate it. Let's keep going with this discussion. Next week we're gonna to get to I guess I go first, and it's gonna be the irresistible grace, and then we're gonna to get to perseverance of the saints. God bless you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
5: We'll see you.
1: Thanks, Matt. <laughs>
5: I'm, uh, going nowhere. I am an existential.